Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. On this Palm Sunday, the first day of that final week when we look at Jesus, the very week that he was bloodied and died for us. As we open up the Word of God today, we'll be in Romans chapter 5, and I want us to see Jesus. The title of the sermon this morning is The Story of Humanity, The Story of Humanity. I want to take the biggest look we can at who we are, who Jesus is, and what salvation is all about. And let me just say as we begin that I really appreciate the uh, feedback that we've been getting on these sort of strange services where I'm here and you are there. Uh, I really, uh, I appreciate it. Uh, um, The sermon last week on Psalm 103, and I was able to talk with so many of you this week about uh, how that made a difference in your life and the focus of your heart, and I appreciate that. It sure is different getting sort of together this way online. I wish that, um, I wish that some Sunday in February, I had taken a, a picture of you, not a picture of you as you are now in your living room, but I wish that we had been up here and just taken a big picture of the congregation so that I could just see that. But even though you're not here, I, I see that in my heart and in my mind's eye. And um, uh, though we're not together uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ and through the bond of the Holy Spirit, we're together worshiping him and we're together focusing on what he has for us today. So I want to look this morning at Romans chapter 5. We'll read verse 6 down through verse 17, and we'll call this the story of humanity. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 down through verse 17. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Much more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray again. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be lifted up through our focus, not only upon this text, but upon the whole story of salvation and the story of humanity, your image marred and then restored through that bloody sacrifice and that victorious resurrection. And as Jesus is lifted up, we ask that now through our new knowledge that we gain here and our new affection that is kindled here, that Jesus would be lifted up and many would be drawn to say we would see Jesus and they would see Jesus and hear Jesus in and through us. We ask this, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen. Just to point your attention to a few observations here in what we've read in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 16. Notice verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through one man. And then notice, really the key to the whole thing is there in verse 14, the end of verse 14, the transgression of Adam, and then look at how Adam is described. It doesn't simply say Adam, the first man that God made. It doesn't say that. It says in verse 14, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. That's the key. In the story of humanity, that is the key. Adam, the first human, was a type, which means that there's a prototype humanity even preceding Adam and a perfect type of humanity that's to come after Adam. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Now notice also in verse 15, when we begin to describe Jesus Christ, you see what it says? We see one man again at the end of verse 15, that same phrase, one man, but look, that one man, Jesus Christ. And then you see the same thing in verse 17, through the one man, end of verse 17, through the one man, Jesus Christ. So I want to talk to you about the story of humanity. I'm not going to exposit this text verse by verse this morning. I want to read this text and use the truth of this text and related texts to tell the story of humanity. This is one of those big picture sermons that tries to answer the question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be fallen? Why do we die? Why do viruses and other diseases take our lives? And what does it mean to be saved? And how can we be delivered? So I want to talk about the story of humanity and make five points to this story. Point number one, the story of humanity is a tale of two men. The story of humanity is a tale of two men. The whole story you see in Romans 5 has these two heads. And the fate of every woman and every man follows behind the train of one of these two heads. Adam had the whole human race, and Jesus Christ is the head of all of those who will believe. Each one stands representatively as the head of his respective constituency, or reciprocally, each constituency stands in solidarity behind its head. Only two men. The tale of all of humanity is behind these two men, which means that your future your present and your future is wrapped up not just in you and the choices that you make and the plans that you make, but your future is wrapped up in one of these two heads. 
In his classic commentary on Romans, John Murray summarizes Romans 5 with these words. These two heads of humanity and the two parallel yet opposing lines bound up with them are the pivots on which the history of humanity turns. These are the pivots of all of redemptive revelation. The first, making redemption necessary. The second, accomplishing that redemption. The first, Adam, making that redemption necessary. The second, the last Adam, accomplishing that redemption. So you see, the story of humanity is the tale of these two men. Here in Romans 5, all of the history of all the world is divided among these two representatives, and each one of us is following the one or the other. Verse 12, either we're following sin and death, or verse 15, we're following the free gift and the grace of God by the free gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ The story of humanity is the tale of these two men. And so in this story, even right here in Romans 5, we can see at least three essential things about our salvation. As we celebrate salvation, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, that Easter morning of the resurrection, we see at least these three things about salvation here in Romans chapter 5. First, the absolute necessity of salvation. Because we are all in Adam, we're all going to die under the wrath of God. We need to be saved. The absolute necessity of salvation. Second, the absolute certainty of salvation. I heard that in verses 9 and 10. Since we've been justified by his blood, we'll be saved from him, saved by him from the wrath of God. If while we were enemies we were reconciled, much more shall we be saved by his life. We see the absolute certainty of salvation. So we see the absolute necessity of salvation. We see the absolute certainty of salvation. And then what makes it really, really good news is that we see the absolute graciousness of salvation. You'll look in vain for Romans 5 to explain how you can do some things to get yourself saved. Salvation is the absolutely gracious provision. It's called the free gift, verse 15, the free gift. Salvation is the absolutely gracious provision of Jesus Christ. So we see in this tale of two men these wonderful truths about salvation, that it's necessary, that it's certain, and that it's gracious. But the second step in this story of humanity, that we could, the second principle that we could draw from it is this. The first Adam sinned, leading to death. The last Adam won, leading to life. The first Adam sinned, leading to death. That's what Romans 5 says. And the last Adam won through righteousness, through obedience, he won. And this leads to life. This is pretty simple, and yet it's profound. It's as plain and as simple as dirt. Adam was made from dirt, but he was made in the image of God to rule and to reign And yet, because he listened to that old snake, he's now buried under the dirt. It's as simple and plain as dirt, and yet it's as profound and cosmic as the very plan of God that even in making Adam, the very first man was a type. There was one who came before, and there was one who's coming after. The first Adam sinned, leading to death. We've all sinned, and Romans says the wages of sin is death. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. 
Because we have sinned, we no longer enjoy that dominion and, and, and that freedom in creation that we were meant to have. Instead, death and this old world and Satan, that old serpent, has dominion over us. Look where we are today. We're uh, quarantined because we're trying to save lives and avoid death. Maybe it's, I don't know if it sounds rude, but it's actually true to say, you know, uh, we're not really avoiding death. We're only delaying it. Because of Adam, each one of us is going to die one way or another. This is what happened because of sin. But the glorious gospel is that though we though we ashes to ashes, dust to dust, though, though in Adam we die, in Christ we can be made alive with a life that overcomes death. When he sinned, Adam undid what he was made for. He was made to walk with God, to enjoy God's presence, to establish the righteousness of God on the earth. And yet Adam doubted God's fatherly provision, and Adam transgressed God's loving law of protection, and he sinned. And just like Adam, we also sin. You could say that Adam and Eve sinned out of discontentment. Church, where is your contentment, particularly these days? Are you letting the discontentment and the complaining pile up? Or do you express trust in God and in his providence and in his provision? Adam and Eve sinned because they had no regard for God's voice. Though God spoke the law, they said, well, that doesn't apply to me. Where's our respect for God's word and God's voice? The first Adam sinned and he led to death. That's because Adam became the first prodigal son. But the last Adam, the true son of God, always did what was pleasing to his father. At the outset of the ministry of Jesus the Christ, the carpenter, the man from Galilee, when John the Baptist took him down the banks of the Jordan and put him under, heaven opened up, and on, on that inauguration of his public ministry came the declaration of approbation from heaven. This is my beloved son. He pleases me. John's, Jesus' testimony in John's gospel is this, John 14, verse 31. How could he say this? John 14, verse 31. I always do as the Father commanded me. I, I don't know if I could even say I half the time do as the Father commanded me. I don't know if you could say that either. Jesus says, I always do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Perfect love. And Jesus is going to say to us a little bit later in John's gospel, perfect love is demonstrated in perfect obedience. What if, it, what if Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father, not because he had to tamp down his will and he had to, but because he was so assured of the Father's love for him that obeying the Father was the most natural step he could take. This is the reality that we were made for. This is the kind of obedience that we were made for. Adam 
turned from the love of God and brought sin and death into the world. Christ walked in the love of God, demonstrated perfect fidelity and obedience to God, not out of a mere legalism, but out of a heart that always loved his father and was always assured of his father's love for him. And so where Adam failed and was defeated, Christ conquered and won. Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. Christ conquered that disobedience at Golgotha. And you see, Adam was told in Genesis 1 to fill the earth and subdue it. But because of sin, thorns and thistles and so many problems overrun humanity on the earth. But Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And when Jesus fulfilled the will of God, you know, Paul sort of riffs on what he's saying in Romans 5 over in Ephesians 4, where he says in Ephesians 4, I think it's 9 and 10 and 11, he says, uh, the, the son of God descended into death and he broke death's back. And then it says, upon the resurrection, he would ascend, leading captivity captive, defeating death by dealing it its death blow. And then it says, he who has ascended far above the heavens will now fill all things. The dominion that Adam was created for and could never exercise was perfectly and finally inaugurated when the last Adam broke death and rising again, he, he exercises this dominion in which now in his righteousness, he fills all things. Ephesians 1.10 and Ephesians 4 verse 10. And so we see that the story of humanity is between these two men, the one who fell and the one who won. Well, the third thing that we can say, and I think I've already hinted at this because you can't help but see it. The third thing about the story of humanity is simply this. The end of the story is right there at the beginning. The end of the story is right there at the beginning. It's often pointed out that there are boatloads of parallels between Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and Revelation 21 and 22. And if that's true, and it is, I actually think the, the hinge point that, that grabs all those parallels together is here in Romans 5. Because it says in Romans 5, verse 14, the second half of the verse, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a pattern of the one who was to come. The first Adam was intended to be a picture of what Christ, the last Adam, finally would be. You see, Adam was crowned in Genesis 1 as the ruler of creation, yet Adam failed. Christ, the last Adam, well, think about that. Adam was, was crowned as ruler of creation. What kind of coronation is coming for our Christ, the last Adam? Psalm 2, he will rule with a rod of iron and the ends of the earth will be his inheritance. Psalm 110, his enemies will be made his footstool. He will shatter all of his enemies. The bodies will fill the valley and he will lift up his head in victory. 
Don't you hear how the dominion that we lost in Adam is restored and again and again superseded through Jesus Christ? Listen to how it's put in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and following. For by him all things were created. That's the beginning, but it's also the end. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. That's their telos. That's their end. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In the very beginning, image of God, bear my image and exercise dominion. We're seeing, we're seeing what we will see in the eschaton when Christ comes to take what's his. In the very beginning, Adam is a type of the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. It's so good to see this, this, this big scope of salvation. I wanted, to, I wanted to preach a message today that wasn't just a verse here or there, but that just shows the whole scope of God's plan of redemption because I just think we're, we're a little too wrapped up in prognosticating what, what are the numbers going to be tomorrow and in 48 hours about the, the virus and the hospitals. And we're a little too wrapped up in, well, what are the economic forecasts for the next 60 days, the next 90 days, the next two quarters? All of those have their place, but I tell you, when we get together and we open up God's word, it's the, it's the story of humanity, marred, fallen, loved, redeemed, restored, and promised a coming victory. That's the story that we need. And you see, the end of the story is right there at the beginning. That's the third step in the story of humanity. Let me give you the fourth. The fourth step is this. Jesus... The perfect human redeemed and restores the image of God. Jesus, the perfect human, redeems and restores the image of God. And here, as I studied Romans 5 this week, I was helped by a lecture that I heard uh, by Michael Reeves, who is professor of Union School of Theology in Oxford. He was giving a lecture on the church father, Athanasius. Listen, uh, just a brief aside, don't waste your uh, quarantine. You know, I, I got to see, I got to watch this lecture that had, you know, sometimes you see something and I just put it in a queue in my, in my phone or my iPad or whatever. And it was like, I don't know how many months it had been in that queue. Well, I finally had time to look at it. And I was able to, to hear this lecture. And in this lecture, uh, Michael Reeves uh, kind of unpacks this illustration that Athanasius uses. And it is, it is, it is a precious illustration. 
about how Christ is the image of God and how Christ restores the image of God in humanity. It goes like this. Adam was like a masterpiece portrait. God created man. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Adam was made like a beautiful portrait. On him, the image of God was painted perfectly and lovingly. But what happened at the fall is that that portrait was ruined. The portrait was ripped, and it was dipped in in deep blood red, and it had lines and scars, and it was marred, and it was defaced. Adam himself became vicious and unholy and selfish, and the portrait was ruined. How can that portrait be restored? Well, the problem is, once the portrait is ruined, there's nobody on the earth who knows what the portrait once looked like. To restore the portrait, you have to know what the painting was. And to know what the painting was, to know humanity, you had to know God and God's holiness and the loving bond of communion and fellowship between man and God when God walked with man in the cool of the evening in the garden. And nobody knew that, and there was nobody who could restore it. There was only one way. Romans 5.14, Adam was a type of him who was to come. There was only one way, and that is that the original subject of the portrait, the original subject of the portrait had to come and have his likeness redrawn onto humanity. Only the one who, so to speak, originally sat for the portrait could now draw it and restore it. So, the image of God himself, the Son of God, the image of God himself, the Son of God, came and took on humanity in order to renew and restore humanity. You see, the illustration is so mind-blowing to me because it's not so much that Adam came first and then Christ came after to restore. It's that Christ is the reality that Adam imaged. And when Adam ruined it, that reality that came before stepped in again to give himself to make up for what was lacking. He came and showed us who God is. The story of the Bible is the story of how God wants his precious portraits back. He's not going to let them remain ripped and marred. He wants the living portraits of his son, the prototype of all of humanity. He wants, the, he wants the images of his son to be lovingly painted, and then he wants them to enjoy one another in fellowship in the church and to enjoy him in fellowship forever. So he sends the original subject of the portrait, Jesus Christ, his son of God, here. And the way the portrait is restored is that the original comes. But what happens It's Palm Sunday, church. We're entering into that bloody week. What happened when the original came is that he, though sinless, was defaced, marred, ripped open, spit upon, not for his own sin, but as the Savior and in in, in restoring the portrait, he himself 
would be bloodied to death. It's like Isaiah, it's like Isaiah says, right, in Isaiah 52, verses 13 and 14, uh, many are astonished at you. Your appearance has been marred beyond human semblance and the form beyond that of the children of mankind. It's like it says in Isaiah 53, our griefs he's borne, he's carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And yet, the beauty of Christ is never more wonderful than when he was marred and ripped open and defaced. Richard Sibbs got at it when he said Christ was never more lovely to his church than when he was most deformed for his church. Church, we always come back to the cross to see the breadth and length of our Savior's love for us, to see the loathsomeness of our chosen iniquities and to flee from them into the bleeding side of the Savior. So we see how Christ restores the image. What a Savior. Jesus, the perfect human, redeemed and restored the image of God. And that leaves us to our fifth and final point. And this is obvious, I hope. We must look to Jesus for salvation and for what we were meant to be. This is salvation and sanctification and glorification. We must look to Jesus for salvation and for what we were meant to be. We look to the sinless one who was crucified in our place. And because of his resurrection, the beautiful victory of the Son of God, now that he's restored to life, we see what we shall be. But now we sinners are called to have faith in the sinless Savior and then to become like him. That's what Romans 5 says right there in verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's what it says right there in verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in our place. It's what it says there in verse 15 of Romans 5. The free gift is not like the trespass. Many died through the one man's trespass, but much more the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounds for many. That's the gospel. Embrace it and believe it. Embrace it and believe it. Trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, today is the day. But church, if you have believed in Christ for salvation, you see, we must look to Jesus not only for salvation, but also for the perfect picture of what we are becoming and what we are meant to become. Look to him for what we were meant to be. You know, especially now, it's kind of funny that we're stuck in our houses Unless you live alone, unless you live alone, I guarantee you, whoever's in your house has found you more difficult to live with in the last seven or 14 days than they thought you were. Now that we're stuck with each other, how much more do we need the gentleness of Christ, the patience of Christ, the love of Christ? Especially now that our world is upside down. Let, let the world hoard 
and grab all they can for themselves. Let the people of Jesus set an absolutely countercultural example in giving away more than we've ever given away. Jesus is who we're meant to be. Jesus alone is the Son of God incarnate. But the Son of God incarnate died for the explicit purpose that we could be children of God and we could be like him in seeing him as he is. So look to Jesus for who we ought to be. So that simply leaves us with the question, when we look at Jesus, what do we see? What was Jesus like? I'm so happy to hear from feedback from many of you who are reading more, more good Christian literature and more, more, more scripture than you have been before. I heard from uh, Darren, I think, that their ABF is kind of reading through John this week as a, as a lead up to the Resurrection Sunday. I heard from Wayne that he has a whole group of people that have committed together to read the New Testament, the whole thing, uh, in, uh, well, I, don't, I forget if he said 30 days or 90 days, but some small amount of time. That's great. As we read Scripture and we see what's there, what do we see about Jesus? And again, from that lecture from Michael Reeves, he, he had a line in there that just struck me. He said, we often describe Jesus as sinless, but that's a chilly word. That merely tells us what Jesus was not. If we leave that word closed, sinless, then it can merely reinforce whatever stereotype we have of what a boring, bloodless, bland, kind of perfectly holy person is. But what was Jesus like? Jesus was anything but boring. Jesus was a man overflowing with life. He was always surprising. Jesus, Jesus had this magnetic personality. And when they talked about him, they said that being with him is like being with the bridegroom at the wedding where the best wine is filling the cup to the brim. He was overflowing with joy. What was Jesus like? Michael Reeves again. Jesus was firm and resolute, yet gentle and meek in the same moment. His truth-telling unsettled people, and yet his kindness won them back. He is serious, but with sunbeams of wit. He is sharper than cut glass. He could out-argue all comers in debate, but he never won an argument merely for the sake of a win. He knew no failings in himself, and yet he was transparently humble. He made the grandest claims for himself, yet he always appears without a whiff of pomposity, the poor, the marginalized, and the needy found someone who loved them and loved them and loved them. Church, we look to Jesus for what we were meant to be, for who we were meant to be. We don't look to him with this moral effort that we're just going to change our behavior. We look to him, and because of his spirit and his resurrection, now his spirit transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. Jesus died because our moral improvement programs were not going to add up, but dying and rising and ascending, he sent his spirit to improve us and transform us from within. Church, there's never been a time when we needed the love of Christ within us more so that we can dwell with each other while, while we're under this stay-at-home order. 
and so that we can reach a city and a nation that is desperate to know Jesus. This is our story. This is the story of humanity from beginning to end, and it's all wrapped up in Jesus. Oh, church, let's look to him together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, hear your children as they pray. And Jesus, we would simply ask that we would, with faith, look to you. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who have not looked to you for salvation. May they look to you in faith. While they were your enemies, you died for them. There's nothing they have to do but look to you. And Lord Jesus, I pray for those church members who have looked to you for salvation, but who now in a renewed way, with a deeper passion and a more ongoing vigor, should look to you for sanctification, to change us from within. Lord Jesus, we look to you. And if all we have is you, we have more than enough. And so we rejoice that you are ours and we are yours, Lord Christ. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.